0: Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindsRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I am absolutely delighted to be speaking again with Michael Flournoy, who is a name that very long time listeners to TMR might just about recognize because Michael joined us way back in, well, it turns out it was 2015. I thought it might have been 2016, but I've since been corrected by him. It was as far back as 2015 to take part in a debate on the show. Um, We haven't had one of those for a long time, but we we have had them, maybe a couple I think it is, and maybe we'll have them again. Um, He came on the show in his then capacity as a Mormon apologist to debate Bobby Gilpin, who was a Christian evangelist at the time, to debate the question, does the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, LDS otherwise known as, does that organization preach the biblical gospel? And at the time, of course, he was defending the LDS position on that, but things have changed since then, and uh, Michael's faith position has changed on that question, but I will leave it up to him to describe that for us in some detail. That's not up to me, that's up to our guest today, and uh, we'll get a full picture of that in just a moment. Uh, Michael, thank you ever so much indeed for coming back on the show after all this time, five years.
1: I know it's been too long, uh, but I'm, (laughs) I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for letting me talk to you today.
0: Well, it's great to be speaking to you. Um, I think I might have contacted you a couple of years ago or something, or maybe a year ago or so, saying, you know, how are things going, and maybe would you like to come on? And uh, obviously, you had to pick the right time to do that. But it's great now that you feel that uh, you'd like to uh, chat about these these things. And of course, you've you've written a book as well to document how things have changed for you. A book called "Falling into Grace: How a Mormon Apologist Stumbled into Christianity." Interesting title there. Stumbling into Christianity. Um, yeah, you explain that to us in a minute. Uh, I do highly recommend this book. Thanks very much for sending it to me. So, okay, here's the first question then. I said to you, can you describe to us how things have changed? So off you go. What's changed and how has it changed?
1: I think the easier question probably would be what hasn't changed hmm. since then. Um, my family situation changed. My style of worship changed, the kind of church I'm going to changed, and the doctrine that I believe in changed. So everything took a a one eighty hmm. when I left Mormonism. The foundation of my life just completely crumbled away and a, a whole new one got built. But more more than anything, you know, I I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord, my Savior, that He is the one true God, and that He He saves me through through his grace, through faith alone. And that's the major change. And instead of defending the LDS faith now, I have a blog where I actually defend the, where I actually witness to Latter-day Saints. So I've kind of taken up arms on the opposite side now.
0: Yeah, I suppose there must be aspects of your faith life that are consistent with what you experienced before, in some ways.
1: In some ways, yes. Um, as far as, you know, reading scripture Now, what that scripture is, is different. You know, I I only read the Bible now. Hmm. I don't uh, read the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants or the Pearl of Great Price in an attempt to get closer to God. Hmm. I still pray, but even that is very different now because before it was very formal. Hmm. And I would be praying in King James English, and I realized I don't have to do that. I can just pray conversationally. And I prefer that, actually. Hmm. So, yeah, I'm doing a lot of the same things, but the way that I'm doing them is different. Everything's changed at least a little bit.
0: And I'd be interested to know, you say that you now confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. From speaking to Mormons in previous years, they would say that to me. So how has that understanding of those words changed for you?
1: Yeah, so when I was on my mission in California for two years— I ran into a Christian one day and he kind of kind of forced us into saying the sinner's prayer with him. You know, he kind of said, "Hey, pray with me and and repeat these words after me." And, and one of those was, you know, "We accept you, Jesus, into our lives." So, we said all that, and I meant it, but none of it really felt like it went against what I believed as a Latter-day Saint mm. because when I was Mormon, I did think that I accepted Jesus. As my savior, but part of that meant that I was going to follow him and I was going to keep his commandments and I was going to uh, make myself worthy. You know, I believe that his grace was something that enabled me to erase the sin in my life and to become a better person and to become worthy to enter heaven. Now when I say I'm accepting Jesus as my savior, I mean that I am accepting his righteousness for the work that he accomplished to make me righteous and not what I'm doing at all. It's all him.
0: Absolutely. And that theme of grace comes up uh, in a very big way in in your book. Do you find also that you are Closer to the person of Jesus.
1: Yeah, there's a big difference there too, because I felt like I had a relationship with Christ at various times in my life when I was Mormon, but 90% of the time, you know, God just felt like a rich uncle that lived, you know, across the ocean Hmm. and he had an inheritance that I hoped to receive someday, but I never talked to him, you know, on the phone or had a real relationship. With him, it was all very transactional, and now it feels very close. It's it's completely different. It's like I care more about the relationship than about the transaction or the inheritance. Because to me, he is my inheritance. Before, my inheritance was oh, I'm going to become a god, and I'm going to have my own glory and my own uh, my own universe or or whatever. And that's not even on the table now.
0: Right. Yes, indeed. This is uh, something that I think perhaps needs to be explained. I don't know whether this is the right time to do it or not. Perhaps it is. You know, there'll be a lot of people, I think, who probably don't know much about what the LDS Church actually believes. I mean, could you sketch out some of the very basic doctrinal differences between their beliefs and what you might call conservative evangelical Christianity?
1: Yes, I'm going to try to do this briefly. I could probably talk about this for 10 hours straight without stopping. (laughs) Sure. They use a lot of the same language as Orthodox Christians, but everything has at least a little bit of a different meaning. So they don't believe in the Trinity, first of all. They believe in God the Father, the Son Jesus Christ, and then the Holy Ghost, but that they are three totally separate and unique gods. I actually viewed myself as a tritheist when I was Mormon. Hmm. And then they believe that Jesus is a created being, that he is the first spirit child of Heavenly Father, and we are all spirit children of Heavenly Father, literal children. And that makes us brothers and sisters with Satan and the fallen angels and and everything. And they believe that the Father has a Father, and he has a Father God, and it just goes on for eternity, and that we can become gods ourselves through obedience – by following the same path that god did
0: so does that mean that as a mormon you could become the god of your own universe in the same way that god the father would be understood to be the god of this universe is it is it that stark
1: it is that stark yes Hmm. well yeah i i actually kind of started to take a different view when i was an apologist because i was reading the bible trying to to figure out how to debate Christians. And and I kind of came across a lot of passages that say that, you know, there's no God before me formed that made me believe the Father wasn't created. And so I actually came to the belief that I would be a God, but I wouldn't have worshipers in the same sense that Heavenly Father does. And my family argued with me about that, saying that they would be worshiped in the future. So there's some room for Latter-day Saints to not believe that, but a lot of them do
0: and and then there's jesus himself uh we understand to have been ministering in palestine but then there is this key book called the book of mormon which purports to talk about jesus's ministry over in the americas could you give us a brief sketch of that
1: yes the the book of mormon they consider it to be additional scripture to the bible In fact, they say that it is the most correct of any book on earth. So usually they will go for the Book of Mormon over the Bible if they find a contradiction. But the Book of Mormon supposedly takes place on the American continent from a group of people who left Jerusalem before it was overrun by Babylon. And then they got on a boat, came to the Americas, had children, started a civilization in the Americas somewhere. And in 3 Nephi 11 – of that book, it says that after Christ died, he ascended to heaven and then he came down to the Americas to the people called the Nephites, and he showed himself to them and then taught several chapters worth of doctrine that is lifted straight from the New testament yeah, right
0: <laughs> yes, this is something that I must admit that I came across this particularly talking to Mormon missionaries in the past that there 's a whole section about spiritual gifts from first Corinthians uh, written by Paul, of course, first Corinthians twelve and I noticed that this was supposedly written on the other side of the world, uh, and it was all in exactly the same order. And I always found that extraordinary, how people could not see that that was lifted from the New Testament. Because I, I remember saying to people, why, if God was actually doing this and giving this as a separate revelation to different people, why would he give it in exactly the same order, in, in order to rouse everybody's suspicion that this was a copy? Um, I've always found that strange. A little anecdote there, but that's, that just jumped into my mind.
1: Um, yeah, and, and if I could just- yeah, Kind of touch on that. The Book of Mormon actually answers that charge, mm. and it says, you know, that God speaks the same words to all people, no matter where they are. Right. You know, on the Isles of the Sea, because because supposedly the Nephites didn't have that book, and so you know, it's a mercy to give them the same information. But the problem is, the Book of Mormon explicitly states over and over again that the audience is modern people in our day and age. And obviously we have the Bible, so if that were true, we don't need those words again. It's just redundant.
0: Mm. And the attitude towards the Bible is that it is a scripture, but isn't there some phrase like it is accepted insofar as it's translated correctly? So that sounds like putting it into second place. Would I be right about that?
1: You would be correct. So that's the eighth article of faith. And it says that we we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. But it doesn't say anything about being translated correctly for the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon also has a passage where it talks about the Bible prophetically, supposedly, saying that many plain and precious truths – were removed from it. And so a lot of Latter-day Saints believe that the Bible's been corrupted. And if you point them to a clear scripture that disproves their beliefs, they're going to say, well, that's not translated correctly. That's going to be the immediate thing that they say.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that, I think that will come up again in our conversation here. A big part of of your book. It has to do with this question of grace. This seemed to be a a major discovery for you, a different understanding of grace as you went through this experience over a number of years. So let's talk about your book. I enjoyed this book very much. I thought you were very honest and very open, and you write very clearly and succinctly as well. So I'd highly recommend this to everybody. Um, I noticed that you had a foreword written by Lynn Wilder, who is, I believe, quite a name in ex-Mormon circles. Um, mm-hmm. Did she help you in any way writing this book?
1: She didn't help me write it, although she was part of the experience that I write about in the book. Hmm. I did debate her as well. On a different podcast, and it didn't go so well. That's kind of when the, uh, <laughs> yes. the my eyes began to, to open after debating her. So we've kind of kept in, in close contact ever since then, and, and she agreed to write the foreword for me, which – was pretty awesome, I thought. Hmm.
0: Okay, so in the prologue, you make it clear that you do hold a very positive view of the LDS Church. Um, You're not like a lot of ex-Mormons who seem to be rather bitter about the experience. Um, You actually say they're some of the best people you've known. Why is it you have this more positive view of your previous experience, do you think?
1: I think, you know, for a little while there, I did feel bitter when I left. And I think all ex-Mormons go through a period of just feeling angry and feeling like they were lied to. But a a big part of it, too, is I kind of look, and my whole family is still Mormon. All the friends that I grew up with are still Mormon, and we all still get along really well. And I have to tell myself that they are victims of the church just as much as I was. You know, it doesn't make them bad people to be Latter-day Saints and it's just part of the culture that i grew up with for 32 years and so it's what i'm comfortable with i feel like i get along with latter day saints sometimes better than i do with uh, with christians just because i'm still getting to know christians and and getting to be familiar with their vibe i guess you could say you know i actually said in my book too that i consider latter day saints to be the family that i was born into and christianity is the family that i married into so i kind of view them both as being family and being my people yeah. in some way now that doesn't mean I, I think that mormons are right i think that they are in error and that they need to be saved and so i do, i have a heart for them because that's where i came from mm-hmm. and, and i do see them as, as my people like that yes yeah.
0: yeah, so it's not about them it's about uh, what they unfortunately believe Okay, well, let's talk about the beginning of the book, then. Um, You describe what it was like being brought up in this LDS uh, situation. Now, you you mentioned that you actually have quite a lineage, actually, don't you? You come from a noble family line, you say. Could you describe that? Because that will be interesting to people, I think.
1: Yeah, it's uh there's there's actually noble lines in the church. You know, if you're descended from one of the apostles, like one of the original apostles or you can trace your line back to Brigham Young or or something like that, but a lot of times if you can say that your family's been in the church and they were part of the original church that came into Utah out of Missouri, then you know, it's just a, a family tradition, they're very strong in the church and I mean, I'd have my grandparents over, and they could tell stories for hours about our ancestors that, you know, they were involved in polygamy. They were there back then. Um, I actually am descended from a polygamist and just stories about, you know, coming across the plains and the hand cards and and having these spiritual experiences. And so it's just kind of one of those unwritten rules in Mormonism that the longer that you've been in or your family's been in, kind of gives you some clout.
0: Is it right that your family, one side of your family, actually can be traced back to Joseph Smith himself?
1: It's not traced to Joseph Smith, but uh-huh. they knew him. There's uh-huh. journal entries where, you know, they had Joseph Smith in their home. Like, I guess he held one of my great-great-great-grandmothers in his arms as a child, and, and so they knew him. Yeah. They claim that the line goes back to Adam and Eve, but I haven't, <laughs> you know, I'm a little, little uh, sceptical. <laughs>
0: On that, <laughs> right? Yeah, so I can see how that romanticism might push that far back. Yes, um, you give the impression that this actually created a weight of expectation upon you within the church. Could you describe what that was like and, and how heavy that weight was?
1: Yes. So every man in the church is expected to go serve a two-year mission when they turn nineteen. I think they changed the age to eighteen somewhat recently. But it is just a rite of passage in the church. They say you have the choice, but the pressure is already really high to go because mm. the young women in the church don't want to marry you unless you've gone on mission and come back. So they're kind of taught that growing up, like, you want to marry a returned missionary. Mm. You know, in Utah and stuff, it's easier to get a job if you're a returned missionary. You're viewed as being an adult and being more mature And so it's just a big part of the culture that, you know, you go on that mission and it is, it's two years of your life. And so it's kind of hard to say, I'm going to devote two years of my life when you're 19 Mm -hmm. to go do this. And it's very strict because you don't even get to talk to your family Mm -hmm. on the phone for those two years, except for on Mother's Day and and Christmas. Mm -hmm. And there's no TV. You're only limited to reading scripture and a couple of LDS books that are approved, You don't listen to the radio. I mean, the rules are just very, very strict. You were there to preach Mormonism for two years. And there's no dating, I think you say. Yeah, there's no dating. Absolutely not. (laughs) Uh, That'd that'd be a huge distraction.
0: (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
1: But but, I mean, I ran across missionaries in my mission all the time that didn't want to be there. Mm. And they went just because of the cultural pressure. In my family, there was definitely that cultural pressure, probably stronger, because it had been going on for six generations. Everybody went. And who was I to say no to that? And my grandpa – he kept calling me the torchbearer. He said, you're the torchbearer. My dad was a convert, so I was going to be the first missionary ever from his side of the family. And then six generations in a row on my mom's side. So they were all very excited for me to go on this mission.
0: Uh, but you didn't feel excited though, did you? you? You seemed to be quite unworthy within your own mind.
1: I felt both unworthy, but I was also very shy. Hmm. And I did not like the idea about going out there and having to talk to people for two years i was kind of at the point where i didn't even like to call and order a pizza because i had so much anxiety (laughs) talking to people and i was like how am i supposed to do this exactly Yeah. yeah
0: you did in fact go on this mission but you were fortified i think weren't you to some extent in that you had had some kind of spiritual experience before you went. You talk about some meeting that you went to where you and all the other young people at that meeting did have quite a dramatic experience of some kind, which at the time you believed to be the Holy Spirit falling upon the meeting. Um, What do you think about that now? Do you still consider that to have been a work of the Spirit? Did that help you in your mission?
1: So going back to that, I do actually believe that was the real Jesus reaching out to me. Huh. I had a lot of misconceptions at the time and and I mentioned that in my book that I thought that it was, you know, Jesus the spirit brother of Lucifer reaching out to me, but um obviously I wouldn't put that kind of spin on it right now. But basically, I felt like God was reaching out to me and kind of revealing himself as having unconditional love for me and that that just does not mix well with Latter day Saint belief, because as a Mormon, if I'm not worthy and I'm not keeping all the commandments, I actually lose that grace. I don't get it back until I repent. Not only that, but the Holy Ghost abandons you until you get your life back in order, because the Spirit is easily offended, they say. And so, you know, if I were to walk into a bar or somewhere where there's alcohol, the Spirit would leave me. So it did fortify me somewhat, but it did not give me the doctrinal training that I needed. And so I went to uh, the missionary training center in Provo, Utah, and kind of realized really quick that a lot of the other young missionaries who were just starting their training already had a really good grasp of the doctrine. And I didn't have a grasp of the doctrine at all. I just hadn't really gotten to that point. I was only going to church for the social reasons And it was kind of there where I started to to really grasp the doctrine of the church and learn how to teach it.
0: Before you went on mission, is it right that you had to have some sort of vetting process where your character was deemed to be good enough in some way to go? Correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I got the impression from the book that that whole process was quite traumatic for you, in that you you didn't feel you were up to it, but you had to sort of give the impression that you were up to this because you were going on a mission, and that was the only way you could go on a mission, and that was such an important thing to fulfil. Could you talk us through the the weight of that experience, how that was difficult?
1: Yeah, and I think I'd had a couple of interviews before where. I had said that I wasn't worthy, that I wasn't keeping some of the standards, and so they would delay that meeting, say, okay, well, we need you to you know, wait for so many weeks. You can't take communion during that time until you get your life right with God. And I never felt perfect whenever I went to these meetings. So they'd ask several questions, and some of them were pretty easy, Uh, like, do you believe in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost? I'd say yes. Uh, Do you believe in Joseph Smith, that he restored the the church? And do you sustain all the leaders, to which I'd say yes. And then it would get into a lot of personal questions, one-on-one with the bishop. And so they'd ask, you know, are you paying your full tithing? And so you had to pay ten percent of your gross income to be considered worthy enough to go to the temple. So that was one thing. And then you you had to be living the law of chastity. So that was where you couldn't be, you know, viewing pornography or or even having lustful thoughts. You know, I, I think there was probably some gray area there, but I was a perfectionist, so lustful thoughts would definitely fall into that category. And being a teenager, that was definitely an area where I struggled. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, it's quite normal. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. So uh, were you required to say that you fulfilled these particular criteria? And if you did, was it a temple recommend or something that you were given? Is that what it's called?
1: Yes. So as long as, as I passed the interview questions, and I think the last one too was, do you feel that you are worthy to enter the temple? Mm. And often I would say no throughout my life. And they'd say, well, why not? You answered the questions. Yes, like you should be able to go. But the temple is, you know, we consider that God's house, you know, the house of the Lord. If you were able to go into the temple, you were worthy enough to go to heaven, to go to the celestial kingdom.
0: But you were never allowed to say, well, I am worthy because Christ has died for me and all my sins are dealt with. That was never sufficient just to say that.
1: They would have they would have looked at me so strangely, and they would have said, "What are you talking about?" If I had said that, because worthiness is about was about me keeping the commandments of God and being clean of my own merits. It had nothing to do with Christ, except that He was there to help me to do it. He was an assistant. Um, that was about it. They they would say, "Hey, you know, you need to uh, if you're struggling, you need to pray harder." You know, you need to be reading your scriptures so that that grace can enable you to overcome this. You you can overcome this with Christ's help.
0: So the grace was an empowerment that they believed Christ would give you. It was not a standing that you you had legally, that you stood in a position of righteousness before God. Instead, it was an assistance, a sort of spiritual assistance.
1: Yes, it was a spiritual ex- assistance. The whole idea of forensic righteousness or being justified our pronounced righteous was foreign to me the entire time I grew up in the Mormon faith. Um, but, you know, the, the idea is, you know, we have to be perfect before we die. And, you know, we can just be a little bit better every day through grace. And eventually the idea is that we will make it there to perfection. And it's just such a toxic belief because I was constantly – Judging myself based on the days and weeks before, and getting frustrated if I couldn't see the difference visibly. Mm, mm. But uh, but yeah, I got a temple recommend from that, which enabled me to enter the temple and and basically said that I was worthy. And and I did have a lot of pressure to just say that I was worthy and and that I was fulfilling all those requirements. Mm.
0: So can you remind me what the LDS understanding is of what Jesus achieved on the cross?
1: So, Mormons believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he opened up basically a stairway to heaven that we could get on and we could start to ascend through church ordinances. So, you know, they have the third and fourth article of faiths. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. And it says, we believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth, laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. So there's a whole list of things that you have to do to get into this covenant with God. In fact, a a Latter-day Saint would say that baptism and the laying on of hands is when uh, you really start to have that grace imparted to you. If they start to understand imputed righteousness at any point, they're going to say baptism is when it happens, not belief. And then after that, you still have to go into the temple, and there are ordinances there that you have to go through. So when I went to the temple right before my mission, I was there to get an endowment. That's the first one, and then later you have to get married and sealed in the temple, and that is so that you can both enter the celestial kingdom and become gods together. So that's another – Belief that a lot of Mormons have is that Heavenly Father has a wife. Uh, there's a there's a Heavenly Mother as well.
0: Wow. Mm. Um. Okay. So you you did in fact go on this mission. I understand that you were not terribly happy about where you went on mission because it wasn't very exotic um, <laughs> yeah. as you were rather hoping it would be. <laughs> uh, but that was God ordained in your view because you came to meet a chap whose name I think is Ed Enox who had. Quite an impact upon you. Can you describe what the impact was?
1: Yes, so my companion and I, I was with a, a guy named Elder Mitchell. So you don't go by your first name when you're on a mission. You go by oh, yeah. by Elder or Sister, for those of you who have not met with Mormon missionaries before.
0: Yeah, so what, what I notice about that is that uh, they insist that you, as the person inviting them into the house, actually call them elder so-and-so. And I must admit, in later years, I've uh, resisted that because I think, well, I don't recognize your eldership, you know. Um, so I've said, I'm, I'm sorry, if you don't mind, I'll continue to call you John. And they, they don't like it, but uh, they, they have to accept it. Anyway, that's uh, something that uh, <laughs> yeah I've noticed happening. Anyway, yes, go on, carry on.
1: So I was, I was with this guy, Elder Mitchell. And we were both very inexperienced. I'm kind of surprised they put us together because I'd been out about three months, he'd been out four. And so we're both still kind of learning how to do it, yeah. how to preach and how to do missionary work. And he ended up getting a flat tire on his bike. And so we were walking up to the bike shop. We were really popular at that bike shop because we got flat tires all the time on our bikes. Um, the missionaries these days have cars quite a bit. So they're pretty oh, well, pretty lucky. Well, um, yes. And you always go around in twos, is that right? Well, we go around in twos. I think part of it is so that you know, we can keep an eye on each other uh-huh. to make sure that, that we 're actually doing missionary work and that 's just uh, <laughs> coming from a guy who was a mormon missionary and i 've seen those missionaries do all kinds of crazy things you know they're, they have this image like they 're perfect, hmm. but in reality they do all kinds of things that they 're not supposed to do i 've known guys who who have gone out on dates right. as missionaries yeah. or or got kicked out. I had, a, I had one companion. They, they kicked him off his mission because they found a small vial of alcohol wow. in the trash. Gosh. Yeah. So they do all kinds of stuff that has nothing to do with missionary work or even being a good Mormon, for that matter.
0: was just interesting. They kicked him off that. for They didn't say, hey, come on. That's not the thing to do and mend your ways and get on with what you're supposed to be doing. They kicked him off the mission.
1: It's amazing. They, they did. Immediately. Yep. You have to be up to a, a certain standard mm. or else you can't stay there if they catch you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're walking up to the bike shop and and this guy comes out from across the street and starts yelling at us saying – hey, you guys are Mormon missionaries, right? Can you come talk to me? And so we just looked at each other like, oh my goodness, Like God set this up for us to baptize this man. And we go over there and he he sets us down with some water and and his friends are there. And we look around and we realize we're not in a house. This is kind of a study. There's all these religious books all over the shelves, including the Book of Mormon and the Quran and just everything. And he comes back and he, he introduces himself, says he's Eddie Knox. He's the... Founder of the, I think, the local Evangelical Debate Society.
0: <laughs> right, I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I actually hadn't had any interaction with Christians at this point. The most interaction that I'd had, unfortunately, was getting doors slammed in my face and hmm. kind of some judgmental looks as I walked down the street. I can believe that. But none of them had actually engaged me yeah. until him.
0: Hmm. There is a lesson in there, isn't there, for Christians who are listening to open the doors? And I do, I do actually wonder whether people sometimes don't open the door because they're actually frightened and don't know what to say. And uh, if that's the case, then I think it behooves us all to look into some of these things and be more clear about what we believe ourselves. But that's just an aside that uh, I get from what you're saying. Yeah, so what was your experience like talking to him?
1: It was tough. He said, Before you guys start trying to tell me that Joseph Smith was a prophet and the church was restored, I have three questions for you. Who is God? Where do you get your authority and how are you saved? By grace or by works? And I don't even know if we got to the other two topics because he started hammering us with Bible verses about God for about three hours. And these were verses I had no idea about. You know, I thought that us and evangelicals, you know, we were basically the same that there weren't these huge doctrinal gaps, because I'd just grown up Mormon. You know, I hadn't interacted with Christians before. And so this was really eye-opening for me. And basically his argument was, you can't have an endless succession of gods. The line has to start somewhere. I remember that was one of the big ones that stuck out to me in my head. And... You know, at the end of it, he said, "Hey, I work with a lot of college-age students who don't know a lot about Mormonism, and why don't we get together and do a dialogue here in a few weeks?" And I'm just like, "Okay, here's my number. Just let me let me leave." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, and then we're we're walking away from that, and me and Elder Mitchell we're not talking at all because we've just been decimated by this man and. And I'm really fearful at this point because I'm thinking that the church might not be true at all. And I was about ready to pack my bags and just go home and never step foot in the church again.
0: So what turned you around about that? I mean, I get the impression that he, Ed, had impressed upon you the importance of the Bible. So you, in your mind, had put the Bible in first place. But why did you then stay with the LDS? Why didn't you just leave at that point?
1: So he did put the Bible in first place in my mind, and a lot of that was just his conviction and his passion, talking about it. I kind of decided that I was going to read the Bible, and I was going to make my decision based on that because he convinced me that the Bible was God's word, that that was the authority that I should be looking at. And so just based on his own logic, I couldn't go based off what he said. Yeah. You know, I had to go on the Bible, so I was like, I'm going to start with a clean slate. I don't think that Mormonism is true, but I'm going to just take a look. And I just started finding a lot of the verses in the Bible that seem to promote Mormonism uh-huh. at first glance. Um, like a lot of the ones that talk about baptism, for instance, uh, King James Version, Mark sixteen sixteen, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. So, I see a lot of these verses promoting baptism and I'm just like how can they not see this?
0: All right, so you were sort of exercising confirmation bias where you were you were looking for things that would support what you believed at the time, even though you had now given to the Bible this premier position, you you weren't reading all of it and letting it challenge you. You were just reading parts of it.
1: Is that right? <sighs> Yeah, I was trying to go into it open-minded, but I still had my Mormon glasses on. Yeah, yeah. Everything that I saw was still being interpreted see, to promote Mormonism. And so I actually came out of that more committed to the church than I had ever been. Uh-huh. But there was one small change, and it would end up becoming a big problem later, and that is that the Bible was number one for me over the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. I loved the Bible, and I thought that if I was going to debate Christians – I had to be able to find my beliefs in the Bible or else they weren't worth supporting.
0: Mm. That is a decisive change, isn't it? Because then that clause about insofar as it, the Bible, insofar as it's translated correctly, that was no longer operative for you. So when you were finding contradictions between the Bible and the other Mormon scriptures, those contradictions were going to stay there, weren't they? Because there was no way that that clause could be operative to hide those and excuse those contradictions. So that must have been quite a powerful lever that had begun to develop in your spiritual life.
1: It was. So at that point, I had two spiritual levers. One, that Christ loved me unconditionally, Mm. and second, that the Bible was God's authoritative word. And so, yeah, if I found contradictions, they had to stay there, and I had to find some way to justify them logically. But you can only do that so long until your shelf and your mind kind of gets overloaded and and breaks.
0: Well, now, around this time, you seem to be looking for a spiritual witness, um, presumably to sort of bolster your position spiritually within the church, within yourself. Because I know that Mormons do talk a lot about having a spiritual witness, and they appeal to Moroni, chapter 10, verses 4 and 5 because I've come across this a lot when Mormons have been talking to me, and I've had problems, say, about the Book of Mormon. They'll say, well, put your concerns aside for a moment and just ask God if the Church is true, if the Book of Mormon is true. So this is what it actually says. This is Moroni 10, verses 4 and 5. quote, And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost, Unquote. Now, that sounds okay, but I've always been very uncomfortable about that advice and that prayer because, You know, when I've read the Book of Mormon and other Mormon works, I have had problems with some of the things in there. And then the Mormon missionary has been asking me to put my rational concerns aside and pray this prayer as it were to override my rational faculty and give me a feeling or something. Um, That's always bothered me. But you talk about appealing to these two verses and wanting to experience something like this. Do you now understand that when you were appealing to that and trying to seek a spiritual experience, that was all part of trying to have a feeling that would bolster your faith against your rational misgivings at the time?
1: I absolutely see that as trying to do that, because Mormons don't have that same concern about, oh, I'm putting aside my my rational thought. It's more of a, I'm getting an anchor, So that my ship can't be blown away by really good arguments or something like that. Because God is the ultimate authority, and I might as well just get it from his mouth directly through the Holy Spirit. And so when you get that feeling, it's that moment where you can say, I've got a real testimony in Mormonism. And I had to deal with all my companions. I think I had 16 or 17 of them in two years. I got switched around a lot with people But all of them saying that they had had the spiritual witness, and then me wondering, uh, what's wrong with me? How come I can't get this same witness that they have? Because I know that the church is true, but it's based completely on the way that I'm interpreting the Bible. But they know it because God told them. And from my perspective at the time, that is so special compared to me. I don't even have a right almost to say that I know the church is true. Like I believed that the church was true, but they they knew it because God had said so. And I was praying diligently, trying to get that witness from the Spirit, and it never came. No matter how diligently I tried to pray. And one of the LDS apostles, uh, Elder Ballard, had gotten up – in a conference to the entire church. And he said that a testimony was to be found in the bearing of it. Hmm. And so I was trying to show God that I was faithful, that I deserved the witness because I was going around everybody telling them that I knew the church was true when I knew no such thing.
0: So what would be the hope that out of saying the church is true and saying the Book of Mormon is true – that you would then get some kind of subjective experience that would give you this anchor hold that you were seeking? Is that what you hoped would happen?
1: That is, that is what I expected to happen, yeah. That if I said it enough, if I was sincere enough, and I kept praying about it, that eventually that answer would come and that everything would be all right. And the answer never, ever came to me like that.
0: Hmm interesting but it does it comes to some people so have people been able to describe to you what it is they experience is it a warm
1: glow is it a feeling a tingling or what, what, what do people say it is the most common thing that i've heard and i haven't heard it as much lately is been a burning in the bosom like your heart kind of burning inside of you and it's you know, you don't want to tell a Mormon like, oh, that's heartburn because you're just going to offend them mm, yeah. right away. But, yeah, it's just kind of a, a different tingling sensation inside of your body or warmth. Mm. I've heard kind of different things from different people, but it is very subjective. And that yes. is what's that's what's scary about it, actually. Sure.
0: And, and I don't wish to dismiss that entirely because, I mean, I understand that that term probably comes from John Wesley. Because I know there's a Methodist influence there with, with Joseph Smith. Myth, isn't there and john wesley described his heart being strangely warmed and that kind of thing but what concerns me about it is not that there are subjective experiences within mormonism but that such an experience is used to override one's reason and that's my concern about it but that never that actually never happened for you so that is very interesting
1: yeah it is and of course nowadays i have the same concern about it that you do but You know, back then, I was desperate for that kind of experience, and I did end up having other experiences as I went on my mission. You know, it wasn't like, oh, God's telling me that the Book of Mormon is true, but, you know, I was like, okay, this is a sign, and it points to that I'm in the right place at the right time, and and the church is true. So there was, I guess, just like this one moment where we were visiting with a woman, and she was going to have her father come visit, but she'd had her mother come and her mother had died during the visit. And so she was afraid to let her dad come because she was traumatized. And I just felt this impression that she was going to ask for a blessing from us. And then two minutes later, she did. And then I kind of got the same impression, like you're the one who's going to give it to her. And so there's there's this thing in Mormonism where you give people blessings, you put your hands over their head, and you're supposed to be a mouthpiece for God. So you're supposed to hear you know, what he's saying, and some people claim that when they put their hands on people's heads, they know exactly what to say, like what God is telling them to speak. And when I did it, I didn't really have anything. I mean there's a little bit of – maybe impression on, on what to say, but it was kind of like okay, why did you tell me I was going to do this and and now I don't have the words yeah, you know. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's all a very difficult, potentially dodgy area, isn't it, with these spiritual experiences. I'm not against spiritual experiences. I myself, I was converted into the charismatic movement, Um, although I have my concerns about the charismatic scene now. uh, Nevertheless, I do believe the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today, etc. But I do think it's very important that whatever spiritual experiences we have are informed by and guided by. Scripture. By that, I mean, of course, the New Testament. I'm not talking about, you know, any other supposed scripture that somebody might want to bring along. Yeah, um, right. but, you know, as long as we have that as the anchor hold, which, of course, is in connection with our own minds you know, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit being the spirit of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. He enables us, he illuminates our mind to be able to understand in connection with the Word of God. So long as that anchor hold is in place, then, you know, I think spiritual experiences are in order. Uh, but it's, you know, when they're let loose from the Word, what God has communicated to us, I think things can be very dangerous. Um, so I just wanted to say that because I don't want to give the impression that I'm sort of anti-spiritual experience in anything but. Um You spoke earlier about there being two parts to your spiritual development. There was um, the endowment, and then there was marriage that came after. Now, you did, in fact, marry, didn't you, after the missionary work? That was something of a – I get the impression that was something of a surprise to you that that happened. Although somebody had, earlier in your spiritual life, had spoken that into your life in some way, hadn't they?
1: They had. So I'd gone to somebody called the Patriarch when I was a young man in the church. And so he's there to kind of give everybody a prophetic – Blessing. But mine was very vague, for the most part, just a lot of the same things that anybody could have guessed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he he said that I would be married and that I would have children, which is just the natural progression in Mormonism. Um, I don't necessarily consider what he said to be inspired at all looking back he probably said it to everybody (laughs) he he may have you're supposed to keep your patriarchal blessing secret from everybody else they say sacred Uh you're supposed to keep it sacred and so it's not something that you really share with everyone and so you wouldn't really know if everybody had a really similar blessing yeah but i didn't really believe it because i was just so awkward around women I was just like, "There's no way that I'm going to get married. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. It just, it can't happen." But it did. Yeah. Uh, then eventually, it did. Mm. Yeah, it mm. did. It it kind of felt like it it happened late because a lot of Mormons marry very young. Um, I had friends that came off of their mission and were married within the first year of being back. And it took me about three years or about four years coming back before I got married. So that's, uh, I was like ancient in Mormon (laughs) culture before it it happened.
0: Yeah. And you had a son?
1: Yeah. So we got married and several years later, we had a son named Nathan and he is seven years old now yeah, everything was going really well for a long time in that relationship.
0: But I think what we need to stress here is, I mean, that can sound all very nice. And yeah, okay, it's all very nice. But within Mormonism, getting married isn't just getting married, is it? It has a spiritual significance, has a salvific significance. Could you explain that to us?
1: Yeah. So when we went to get married. We actually got married in the temple. You don't get married somewhere else in LDS culture. It's supposed to be in the temple because there you can get sealed for time and all eternity. What that means is that when you both die and get resurrected, as long as you were both worthy and kept all the commandments and all the covenants of the church, you will remain married in the next life. And in the room where we got sealed, there were two big mirrors set up across from each other in the room, and what that did is it showed an endless number of pictures of us kneeling at the altar, and that was to symbolize the infinite generations that came before us, and the infinite generations that would come after us. And so that that means that in heaven, we would continue to procreate, and we would have spirit children that would then go to an earth of our making— and we would be gods over them at that point.
0: So you would be like God the Father and His wife of a different universe, and you would have spirit children, and they would inhabit the world like people inhabit the earth here. You you would become creators of a new universe. Is that have I got that right?
1: You you've got that right. And so there's a lot of speculation from that that you know we would have to have our own Jesus Mm. as one of our children that would then go and do an atonement for that universe specifically. So a lot of Mormons believe that there's been an infinite number of atonements that have been done in these different universes. Mm. Because obviously, if it had happened before, it wasn't sufficient for us because Christ had to come die.
0: So in a way, it's not true to say that Mormonism is tritheistic. It's infinite theistic yeah. in a way isn't it
1: it's it's definitely polytheist and i don't know if there's if there is a word but yeah you're right there's an infinite number of gods it is the most polytheistic religion on earth even overshadowing hinduism
0: well wow. yes Extraordinary. Um, Okay, so things seem to be going well for you, but you did have these questions inside your mind at the same time. But nevertheless, you you became an apologist. You felt a call to become a Mormon apologist. This was when I encountered you the first time when you did that debate on TMR and other debates as well. Um, You clearly did at the time have questions, and that was one of the things that was very endearing about you, actually. And I did admire you, that you were holding to your faith position, yet having a high regard for the Bible and you know, really taking these issues very seriously, these these challenges that Bobby was throwing at you. And, and you know, I, I had high regard for you for doing that. How on earth did you manage to hold all that together, though, the internal questions and yet remaining a member of the church?
1: So there's this uh, kind of special ability that Mormons have. A lot of ex-Mormons will talk about having their shelf break. And so that is when you come across something that you can't explain away there's this kind of shelf space in the back of your mind that you put that out of sight and out of mind, and it just sits there, and, and it doesn't bother you. It just disappears. But eventually, that shelf gets overloaded if you put too much on there, and then it breaks, and that's when people end up leaving the church. So I had a couple of things on that metaphorical shelf. So for instance, where it says in John 4, God is a spirit. Says it very clearly there. Hmm. And I had a really hard time explaining that away because in Mormon theology, God the Father and Jesus both have physical bodies that resemble us.
0: Is that right that God is a God of flesh and bones or something like that? Is that right?
1: Yeah, because when we're resurrected, we're going to have immortal bodies, and then we're going to become gods. And so that's the same state that Ah. that we believe Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother are in, which also causes problems because they're physical beings. But for some reason, they procreate and have spirit. Children. Right. And then they have to go to earth and be born physically to have bodies, which also doesn't make sense. Mm. But yeah, for the most part, I was really trying to logically tie everything together. I actually wrote a book called A Biblical Defense of Mormonism. Mm. And I thought that I had answers for everything. In fact, I thought that Mormonism was far more biblical than evangelical or Protestant Christianity was. And one of the big problems I had with it was the Trinity because it just seemed like there was so much that opposed the Trinity in the Bible. I was actually invited by Ed Enox to go and debate him at a Christian seminary. And one of my opening statements was like how can it kill us to see a God who can't be seen? And the fact that we're all here and we're not dead, and and God's supposedly everywhere, omnipresent, it proves that the Trinity is just a man-made concept from the Council of Nicaea. And and then there's so many verses in the Bible that that talk about obedience. I mean, I think James chapter two was a big go-to for me. You know, faith without works is dead. So if you're going to sit there and say that you're saved by faith alone, then you are not a biblical Christian. But that that
0: actually turns into being absolutely crucial for you, didn't it, in this journey? Because you talk about a guy called Keith Walker, who was doing YouTube videos around the time, and um, he so stressed the issue of grace from a biblical perspective, and obviously grace has been a big factor in your mind up to this point, but he so stressed that that you started to realize that the grace within biblical Christianity was the true grace, and your understanding up to now really was a false understanding of grace, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, and one of the things I really liked about Keith Walker's videos is he didn't just read from the Bible. He actually went to the Book of Mormon for a lot of his points. So he went right to my level, and the fact that he went to the Book of Mormon meant that I couldn't just come up with some excuse like, well, that's not translated correctly or or something like that. Like I had to deal with it.
0: And that is where I'm going to leave it today. Um, I may sound a little bit different because I'm speaking into a mobile phone at the moment. Um, I won't go into that. Um, it is in fact the point at which our conversation got cut off for a while by a power cut that was on his end, not mine, which is quite a surprise because normally that sort of thing seems to happen on my end but there we are, it was his end. Uh, but anyway, we got cut off there. So it's Actually, quite the natural place to leave the conversation for the moment. And I'm doing that because I have basically run out of time to edit the second part of the conversation this week. As we did, we spoke um, a little while after we were cut off. We managed to reconnect. Anyway, so I thought I don't really want to leave this until next week before putting it out because I like, if I can, to keep to my self imposed fortnightly schedule. I don't always manage that, but you know, that's what I'm aiming for these days. So, I thought, why not just put it out, up to that point of the natural break, and the next part, uh, another 40 minutes or so, can just come out as part two, hopefully in a few days from now. So that's the plan. In the meantime, um, do please consider getting a copy of Michael's book, because I am very much recommending this. I'm recommending it for its openness, its sensitivity, its intelligence, and its readability. It is very well written and engaging. Um, it's not a long read. It's only 157 pages, but it is worth every penny in my view. Um, and of course, I'm saying go and read the book because, as always, there is more in the book than can possibly be covered in an interview. And that, of course, can be found on the Bear Moth amazon Um, and if you are using amazon.com let me advise you straight away to take no notice of the one star review there which in my view is a particularly unfair review one of the most unfair reviews I've seen for a long time. Um, And if you feel like responding to that review as I've done, then please do so. Um, Anyway, five stars from me. So that is Falling Into Grace, How a Mormon Apologist Stumbled Into Christianity by Michael Flourney with a foreword by Lynn Wilder and available in Kindle and paperback formats. So I do encourage you to go over there and get a copy of that. So that is it for today. Hopefully part two will be coming out in a few days from now mid-week i expect i think that really is all i have to say for now speak to you soon uh, do check out the show notes because as always there's information there so you have been listening to me julian charles of themindrenewed.com and i very much look forward to speaking to you again in a few days from now